Last week, I did this thing where I said, text in questions, and I'm going to answer questions that you have so far about where we are in foundations. And you did that, and you did it a lot. And so what happened was I have, and I won't let me be able to get to them today. You can't text anything in today. I'm going to do, like I just have a whole list of them from last time. So I'm going to keep going and answer. And here's the thing. I, you know, I preach from the word and we'll be doing that today, but it's, it's important to me to hear. I don't like answering questions that no one's asking. Uh, and sometimes I feel like that, that happens where we're going on the word. It's good to learn it, but maybe that's not hitting you where you are. And so being able to have questions that you all have asked is an important time, and I want to make sure that I'm addressing that. The ones I don't get to today, I will try to do in like a podcast, uh, and we'll throw the link out to that on the app. If you don't have the app, you should download that. If you haven't filled out one of those cards in front of you and you're a visitor, we make a lot of money selling that information. So if you would, no, <laughs> we don't. That is not for anything except for us and the possibility that we may um, want to email you or get in contact with you. Um, for fundraising. No, not for fundraising. Just for just to know who you are. So if you don't mind doing that, just filling that out. Whatever you're comfortable putting on there. Uh, you know, it used to be like all address and whatever. It's like now, if you'll just put a phone in the email, amazing. Email only, we'll take it. Name, we'll take your name. At least then we know who you are. But I want to welcome you if you're new. If you've never been here before, you are welcome here. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, if you're seeking, if you're ask, asking questions, if you're wondering what it's all about, we're here and we're happy to answer those questions. Uh, we are not, we don't shy away from the difficult questions. We're really big on learning how to think. We really do believe that the Bible is the word of God. We have good evidence to believe that. This is not a church where we are encouraging you to have blind faith and to just believe whatever I say just because I'm so good looking. That's not a, that's not a thing. And it wouldn't work because I'm not good looking enough. Uh, but that's not what we do. We, we encourage you to think. We encourage you to come here and ask the questions that you have, and we'll answer them in truth and love. And so thank you for being here. I hope you get a chance to meet some people around you if you're new. Uh, let's get started with these questions. Question uh, number one. This is kind of a long one, so follow it with me. I'll try, to, I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. It says, as a Christian, what does the Bible say about where we should fall between these two perspectives, or is there another third perspective? And here are the perspectives. Here's the first one. As Christians, we should avoid confrontation on socially controversial issues if it could hurt our witness and make Christians seem bigoted and exclusive because we know God is beyond government and will ultimately win, a.k.a. it's not our job to convince, more passive witness. Now, here's the other option. We should fight with all our being to promote and propagate biblical values regardless of whether people are seemingly turned away from Christianity because it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It matters that we stand up for what's right, even if relationships are damaged because Jesus didn't come to make friends. So these are the two sort of, one is sort of very passive, you just don't really say anything, and the other one is, you know, you're the person that nobody wants to talk to. Those are the two options that are given. It says, Note, I am assuming here the best way to witness is to create personal relationships that include planting seeds of faith and inviting people to church on an individual level, being transparent on my beliefs in a loving way. But this question is more for how we function within society at large. Okay, I think this is a good question because you see both of these, right? And to me, you know, if you take these to the extreme, usually the extremes are not good, okay? Usually you want to be able to, to hold tensions. And so if you're the person who just never says anything, and you could go, you have a job, and you work there, and you've been working there for 10 years, and then somebody finds out you go to church or that you're a Christian, they go, oh, I never do that about you. That's not really a good testimony for you, right? Like, they should probably know that. Then there's the other person who everybody knows, everything they think, all the time, 
and all of them have blocked you on Facebook, right? There's that person, right, where it's like it's nonstop. Everything's anger, everything's frustration, everything's, the world's going to hell. It, like, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's bad, but where are you supposed to be? And so here's, here's my advice. I'm not suggesting that you should be in the middle on the issues. On the issues that are biblically true, you should be all the way over to the side that's biblically true. This is a question about how to live. The Lord tells us to live, you know, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, right? Have some wisdom about the fact that people are not changed or moved by your yelling at them or your anger, uh, you know, or that, that type of a thing where you come in and all you ever want to talk about is how horrible everything is. People are actually more moved by, as this suggested, relationship. They want to know why Jesus is making a difference in your life, not just why you think that our culture is a disaster. They may both be true, but they want to know what's happening in your life. And so the best witness that you can have, here's the best witness that I have. Most of the time, I'm pretty happy. All of the time, I'm joyful. Joyful meaning that I have my hope in the Lord. And so I'm able to live, right? like, I didn't get much sleep last night. I've got this thing. I don't know what it is. Somebody's going to diagnose me and send me an email. Don't bother. I don't care. I'm not going to the doctor. But I've got this thing where when I breathe, like, my chest hurts and my back hurts a little bit. Like, maybe my, the internet says it could be like a thing with my lungs. Whatever. If I'm not here next week, that's what happened. I died. Um, but it was hard to sleep last night. You know what? I'm still joyful. I'm still joyful. Okay? I still have joy in my heart when things, when bad things happen. You know, and that's the witness. At the end of the day, they know what the Bible, people know what the Bible says by and large about the issues of the day. What they want to know is how is Jesus affecting your life? How are you being changed and transformed by Jesus? That's to the individual. The bigger question is what about in society? How should we advocate in society? Are we worried about whether we look like bigots? Are we worried about whether people think we're exclusive? Things like that, exclusive meaning that we think Jesus is the only way and everyone else is wrong. Here's the deal. We do think that. Obviously, we think that. Just like everybody else thinks whatever their thing is, is the only way. Even if they say everything is the way, that's still exclusive, right? Because what they're saying is that every single person, Muslim, Jew, uh, you know, Christian, Hari Krishna, whatever, all of whom say my way is the way, they're all wrong because every way is, every way is exclusive, okay? So it's not a problem being exclusive. And the fact is, now the word bigot is just uh, a way of, of ending an argument, right? It's not a real thing. So don't worry about the fact that the positions that you hold that are scriptural are considered by some people to be the wrong side of history or bigoted or that type of a thing. That's going to come and go, okay? Let me just tell you something. God's not a bigot, okay? God's not a bigot. And so if you go with this word, what you're actually doing is showing love and affection and care. That's to the world. That's, that's when, you, when you go to the voting booth or the PTA or the whatever, advocate for the policies that you think are right. But as to individuals, don't spend all your time telling them how bad they are, okay? You can explain that they need Jesus, but to spend all your time talking about how bad they are is not a great way to live in the world. So individually, this thing is exactly right. Best way to create, uh, to, to witness is to create personal relationships, plant seeds of faith, love people. Don't just pray for their salvation. Pray for their hurt ankle, you know? Don't just pray that they would stop doing whatever they're doing. Pray for the fact that their sister has a problem. You know, show real love and care about that individual person. And then you can deal with and open up to the conversations that you can have about the other things in the culture that are a mess, okay? They will, we will always have things in the culture that are a mess until the Lord comes back, okay? 
That's going to be the case. You should care about that. But you should care as much more, really, about the Great Commission that we have on the wall out there, okay? The Great Commission on the wall, right? We're making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Jesus commanded, right? For lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age, amen. Make sure that that's your focus. But don't be so mealy-mouthed. Don't be so weak that no one even knows you're a Christian because you're so scared that if they know you're a Christian, they're going to assume things about you. People should know that you're a believer. How else would they know to come and talk to you when they're struggling? How else do they know who would actually pray for them if they asked? So let people know you're a Christian. Don't be a jerk. That's my answer, you know? (laughs) Confrontation is rarely necessary in those situations. Okay, next one. As a witness, or as witnesses, is it better to dedicate your life to understanding every part of the Bible so you have the knowledge to speak to any questions someone might have, or is it better to have a clear enough understanding of Jesus to witness and explain the path of salvation and not worry about anything else that might overcomplicate another person's salvation, since sharing the gospel and not the Bible is our great commission? Uh, okay, um, somewhat complicated. Let me, let me see if I can break this down. Your job as a witness is actually more than just having a basic understanding of Jesus. Uh, If you want to truly witness and make a disciple, you're going to have to know kind of an awful lot about Jesus, right? And so at least we'd say, oh, at least the New Testament, you got to know what Jesus said. You got to know the path of salvation. You got to know all that. But the thing is, is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible. I'm going to read you a, a few scriptures. By the way, there's Bibles that look like this in the and the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those. Take it home. It's yours. You don't owe us anything for it. We want you to have it. We want you to have the Word of God in your house. Read this. It will change your life. It will transform you. It will lead you to Jesus Christ. Uh, let's, let's read a couple verses. John 5, 39. This is Jesus saying, you search the Scriptures. Okay, now he's talking about the Old Testament here. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. He's saying the Old Testament testifies of me, John 5, 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, John 1, 43 to 45. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, that's the first five books of the, of the Bible, and also the prophets, that's all the, the well, lots of the Old Testament, wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying, this is, the, this is the Messiah that we've seen through the entire scriptures, the Old Testament at that time. It's all about Jesus. Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them. This is after he's risen from the dead. Okay, so he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He comes to these two disciples, and they don't know who he is, and, and he's talking. So he expounded to them in all the scriptures. This is the Old Testament again. The things concerning himself. Same chapter, a little bit later, 24, 30 through 32. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? The whole Bible is about Jesus. So this is not a one or the other. Should we know the Bible and dedicate our lives to knowing the Bible really well? Or should we just know enough about Jesus to evangelize? My answer is yes, right? Yes, you should do both of those things. Your whole life should be dedicated to learning the scripture. What, we have nothing else that speaks the direct word of God but this. There is nothing else 
but this that speaks the direct word of God. There's things we can understand through nature. There's things that God can sort of reveal to us, but we actually have the revealed word of God here. So to not study it would be a huge mistake. You're missing out on a lot of stuff. And we have to be able to give people more than just a general idea of Jesus, okay? And there's a reason for that. There are other religions that talk about Jesus and have beliefs on Jesus. The Muslims have beliefs on Jesus. The Mormons have beliefs on Jesus. There's lots of religions that have beliefs on Jesus. But if you don't know enough about Jesus, you're not going to know which things are false and which things are true, right? This is what it says in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. You have a hope of eternal life. You need to be able to give a defense and answer everyone who asks for a reason for that hope with meekness and fear. This goes to that question before. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, you bigot, you terrible person, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You have an obligation, not just to be able to talk generally about Jesus or just to know generally how you get saved. Those are important things, and you should know that. Start there. But to understand who Jesus is, to understand God, to understand you, to understand this world, to understand all, you got to know the scriptures. There's life in the scriptures. And so I would highly encourage you. That's what we do here every Sunday. That's what we try to do with life groups. Look, you have, you have YouTube. There are tons of really strong teachers that you can hear the word of God from, as well as reading it yourself day by day. We have in the app, we've got a Bible thing. That's what I actually use for my daily Bible. I actually listen to it instead of, instead of reading it in, in a thing with a daily reading. And the Bible, very easy. You turn it on, you push the day, you push play, it reads it to you. I mean, it can't get much easier than that, right? Like, how, how easy do you want it? I don't know. I can come to your house, I guess, read it to you in the morning, but it's not difficult. You just have to make it a practice and a habit because you need to know the Word of God. All right, next question. Was Jesus cool? Yes. He is cool. He's still alive. I don't know if you know that. He's alive. He rose from the dead. Jesus is cool. All right, we got that done. All right, next. I'm starting to read the Bible from the book of Genesis. So starting the book of Genesis. When God is displeased with the people because they were evil and decided to wipe the world and start over with Noah, how is that loving? I know they were evil or wicked, but did they not know of the Lord and still look to him? God says he loves even the lost. When someone asks me, how can you say he's loving and kind, but he killed the whole population? Okay, so, so that is, that's complicated, right? This is, we're talking about the flood, right? And, and Noah, let's, let's go to, let's go to the, the scripture. That's usually what we're going to do. Genesis chapter 6. Yeah, it's, it's, in the, it's in the Old Testament at the beginning. Genesis chapter 6. I'll even give you a page number for using one of these Bibles. It's on page 5. All right. Let's look at it. Now it came to pass when men begin to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, this is, these are certain angels here, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Bad idea. That was never the intent of God. Never. That was not the intent of God. So they took wives, all right? 
And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. Some of you are getting close to that. Congratulations, I can see. <laughs> there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Young people, you ask your parents about that. I'm not going to explain that one to you today. Those were the mighty men of who were old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, and this is super important, understand this, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the state of man on the earth at that time, man and woman. The women are like, yeah, that's how men are. No, this is men and women, okay? They're talking about mankind. Only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This next verse is important. This is the genealogy, okay, who Noah came from, of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. I'll explain that in a second. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And he tells them to make an ark of gopher wood, and so on, and hopefully you know the rest of that story. A couple things here. The first one is this. You have to understand how wicked these people were. The world was filled with violence. They, they weren't thinking something good ever. They didn't do things good ever. Other than Noah, who God saw, they weren't doing anything. The second reason was that thing that we, we saw about the sons of God and the daughters of men and these hybrid creatures that had been created that God never wanted that had to be destroyed. This was essentially a plot of Satan to corrupt the seed of mankind. Why? Because he knew about Jesus. He knew that Jesus was coming, and he was trying to corrupt humanity. And God was like, no, that's why you see that verse. Noah was perfect in his generations. No one in the line of Noah had been corrupted by this hybrid seed that Satan was, was going to use to destroy and corrupt the seed so that we could never have Jesus. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. I, look, I could, we could do sermon or series on this. I don't want to get too far into it. But you have to understand that God didn't just be like, you know what, made these people, let's kill them all. That's not how it worked. That's not what he was thinking. But there's a couple questions to ask yourself, okay? If God is love, because that's what we're talking about, how can he be loving and do this? Does love require justice? You just ask yourself that question. When someone harms you, is the loving thing, when somebody does evil, is the loving thing to allow that to happen or to create accountability for that evil? Would it have been loving if the United States in World War II just said, yeah, Hitler's evil, but our love means we can't do anything about it? No, right? Obviously, love requires justice. You give justice to those who you love. If God is a God of justice, he gives justice to those that he loves. So you got to ask yourself another question. Does God have the right to destroy those he created? He made them. Yeah, he certainly does. Does God have an obligation 
to punish those who do evil if God is righteous and just. Yes, he does. He does. And so when God destroyed these people, he did that in justice because of their utter wickedness. And he was completely justified in doing so. They had gone so far, they had gone so far that they were irredeemable. Irredeemable. Now some people might say, well, what about the babies? Well, the same thing with babies now. If they're babies and they're before the age of accountability, of course, the Lord took them to be with him, right? But as soon as they were at the age of accountability where they could actually think or have an intent, all of their intents were only evil continually. These were broken, wicked people. And by the way, they saw Noah making that boat for a hundred years. They didn't get on, did they? No. The Lord in the flood was completely justified in what he did. And in fact, it was loving. Had he not done it and the entire human race had been corrupted, we wouldn't have Jesus. Jesus couldn't have come of a person who was corrupted in that way. So there's that. But this is a bigger problem. There's a bigger problem here. The bigger problem is what some people will call a theodicy or the problem of evil. The problem of evil is if God is good, then why do bad things happen? If he loves us, how can some of the things that have happened to me happen? And there's really two ways of looking at the problem of evil. One is a logical problem of evil. Okay? This is the one that atheists will bring out and say, God can't be real because of the logical problem of evil. Now, I'm gonna, we're, we're going to walk through that right now. Everybody had their coffee? Okay. Follow me here. Follow me here. Here's the logical problem of evil. I'm going to read four things that are said to be true about God, and then we're going to talk about it. This is what's said to be true. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, that he can do anything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Past, future, he knows everything. God is perfectly good, okay? Evil exists. And here's what the atheist philosophers have said in the past, that all four of those things cannot be true at the same time. Any two and sometimes three of them could be true at the same time, but all four of them can't be true at the same time. In other words, God cannot be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and allow evil to exist. They say it's a logical problem. In other words, there can't be a God like that. So God, they would say God doesn't exist. Now, let's, let's walk through it for a second. There's a philosopher, maybe the greatest philosopher of the last hundred years. His name is Alvin Plantinga. He's a believer, um, Surprise, surprise that the greatest philosopher of the last hundred years is a believer, uh, but it tends to have your thinking better. Uh, anyway, he came up with an argument to deal with this, this problem. And it's a similar argument to one that others had come up with in the past. And the answer is this. God can be all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good and allow evil to exist if he had a morally sufficient reason, a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil to exist. Okay? In other words, that allowing it to exist was a good, right? a justified good, if that's possible. Okay? If that's possible. Now, I need you to understand a couple things about God. Generally, we understand God to be able to do anything. Okay? Absolutely anything. That's what all-powerful means. But not the logically impossible. Okay? We don't believe that God makes square circles or the classic, can God make a rock so big that even he can't move it? Can God microwave a burrito so hot that even he can't eat it? Right? I've heard this type of thing before, right? No. Why? Because it's nonsense. Because just putting words together in a sentence doesn't make them a thing. God can do all things, but square circles aren't things. 
it's by itself, it carries its impossibility in itself, as C.S. Lewis would say. It's impossible to make a square circle because it's either a square or a circle. Okay, so God doesn't do the impossible. So then the question becomes, if he wants to make you and me, is that a good thing? For you, maybe. For me, it was definitely good, okay? No, for all, he wants to make human beings, right? Why? Because he's given them the capacity to have joy and happiness and peace and love, right? And to be in love with him and with one another. It's a good thing. But in order for you to experience those things, love and good and so on, you have to have a will. You have to have a will. There is, you, robots don't feel love, regardless of whatever movies you may have seen, right? At the end, the robot's like crying. That, that's not a thing, okay? Data from Star Trek, oh, we gave him the emotion chip. <laughs> that's not a thing, okay? Robots don't feel love. They're controlled. So the only way that God could create beings that had the ability to love him and love one another is he had to give them a will. So now the question is, is it possible for him to have created us with a will that only did good? And the answer should be simple to you. Of course not. Of course not. That's a square circle. You can't make them with a will and say they can only will the thing that I want them to do. That's not their will. That's your will, right? And so therefore... Humans had to have the capacity to do evil, to sin, to reject God, if they were going to have the capacity to love and honor him and do good, and love and honor one another and do good. They had to have both capacities. God didn't create evil. You did. I did. We're the ones who do evil. That's not God's responsibility. I do evil when I will to do evil. But he thought that making me and making you was a morally sufficient reason to allow that to exist. But there's more to it. There's more to it. And I want to talk about a different, a different problem. So as long as you're following with me on the fact that God has a morally sufficient reason to create us was a morally sufficient reason to allow the existence of evil. He had to allow it in order for you to exist and have a will and be able to love and be able to think and be able to be you, to be an individual, which he thinks is a good thing. He loves you incredibly. He knows every hair on your head, every hair on your head. Some of you, it's like one. That's fine. But he knows he knows you've got that one still, and so do you. You're like, I've got the one. I got it. He knows, he thinks more thoughts about you than you could ever think in your lifetime, all the time. He is in love with you. He's in love with you, okay? And that's good. And that's good. And that was good enough, a good enough thing that he had to allow for the possibility of evil. So then we get to this other, this other problem of evil. By the way, the logical problem of evil is no longer a live issue in philosophy, only on TikTok, okay? You're only going to find people talk about the logical problem of evil on TikTok or YouTube or whatever, what I would call sort of the, um, I, I, I want to be nice. Um, <laughs> people who haven't done their reading, okay? For the atheist philosophers who are in universities, this is not an issue. They admit, the atheists admit, that Plantinga's solution, and it's not only his solution, his is just the one that they that they talk about, but the morally sufficient reason solves the logical problem of evil. You, ca you can have a God who, has, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and still have evil exist. It is logically possible, and so the logical problem of evil is gone. But there's a different problem of evil that remains. It's what, what some people call the emotional or the psychological problem of evil. And this is, this is just more in, in your own heart. But I, but I can't, I just can't. How can these bad things happen? right? And you're emotionally moved. How is God allowing this to happen? Sometimes it's about other people and things you see on the news. And it's like, how can a world like this exist if God is good? 
The, the answer I just gave you, but that's not very helpful for the person who just lost their child, right? If I go, oh, no, logically, the problem of evil has been solved and God can be good. No, that's not helpful. For those of you who have suffered, which is to say all of you and me, we've all suffered, we have to deal with the emotional or the psychological problem of evil. And where the logical problem of evil is solved by proving that God is just, the emotional psychological problem of evil is solved by proving that God is gracious and merciful. The emotional psychological problem of evil is proved in Jesus Christ. Let me read you something. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You feel like you're running right now? Like the running's harder than it's been in a long time? I do. But we run with endurance the race that's set before us. Why? We're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is important. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the thing. Jesus is the answer to the emotional problem of evil because Jesus took it on himself. God could have said, he's just. He could, have, he could once again right now just say, done. Right? He's promised us he won't do that. That's what the rainbow is actually for. That other thing that people use it for, that's not what it's for. The, that, that's a corruption of what the symbol of the rainbow is, a promise from God. It's a mess. Anyway, God has solved that problem with his own body on the cross. That God was willing to come and be a human, okay? And be a human being and live and suffer. He suffered. A man of sorrows. He suffered his whole life and he never deserved it. You deserve it. I deserve it. We're sinners. We've rejected God. We're rebellious, all that. Not him. Jesus was perfect and yet suffered in all these ways that you've suffered. You remember when his friend died and he's weeping. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, easiest one to memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. He suffered. He suffered. And then he suffered the greatest suffering anyone ever could, which is to be betrayed and murdered, beaten and murdered on a cross. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. Because he knew, he knew the joy that was set before him was he was solving the problem of your and my evil. The problem of evil is solved because we have hope. We have hope that we will be raised from the dead, that we will live eternally. And that all of these things that seem like horrible things have all been settled and solved in Christ, that the most pain you could ever imagine will be wiped away with every tear that is wiped away when you're with Jesus. He solved it. He didn't have to. It wasn't justice that led him to solve it. It was grace and mercy. And so, yeah, we suffer and we go through stuff. That's because of the will of, of man. That's because of the things that you do and the things that I do. That's why the entire universe is broken. Just look at the, what we call the natural problem of evil, which is we got tornadoes and floods and hurricanes. We got all kinds of stuff. The world is broken because of our sin. God has redeemed it and will bring all things to pass. All things work together for good for those who are the called, right? For those who love God. This is Romans 8, 28. All things, whatever has happened, he will redeem because of Jesus Christ. 
So the logical problem is no problem. God, God exists. There's no, there's no argument about, against God because of evil. The emotional problem is more difficult. And many people have walked away from the Lord because they cannot deal with the fact that God would allow this thing to happen. And all I can tell you is that if he, if he did not allow these things to happen, we couldn't exist. And we couldn't have the solution to these things that have happened. We couldn't have the solution to the things that have happened. We couldn't have the hope. You need to understand that the hope is in finding Jesus. If you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, how do I solve this? Here's how you solve it. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And if you're saved, you're redeemed, and you're one of those people, the called, those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose, you're one of those, which means all things are going to work together for good. Maybe not right now. Maybe not in this moment, but your hope is that they will. That's your hope. That's your hope. We have hope because of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Without Jesus, there would be only justice, and you don't want that. You don't want that. We all deserve to die because we've all rejected God and sinned and chosen evil. We're sinners. But because Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, we have hope because we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer citizens of this evil world. All this stuff that's going on, it has an effect on us because we're still here. But we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're children of God. Heirs according to the promise of salvation. We're part of his kingdom, the kingdom of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And for those of us who remain here, here's the good and the bad news. The bad news is the reason you're still here, the reason God didn't zap you to heaven the second that you got saved is to be here to suffer. There will be suffering like, like Jesus did. Our Lord suffered. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered horribly. And we are to be like him. And why? The same reason he did. For the lost that they might be saved. That's the great commission on the wall. You're here and dealing with what you're dealing with. Because God has a purpose for you. Good works for you that were set before the foundation of the world, that you would walk in them now as you walk on this earth. It'd be better to be with him. Paul's like, hey, I don't know. To die, live, to die, to be with him is better for me, but to stay here is better for you. You're here to love people as Jesus loved people. What did it cost him? Suffering. What will it cost you? Suffering. Anybody who tells you that's not true, any pastor who gets up on the stage and says it's not about suffering, is selling you something. They want something from you because it's a lie. The scripture is clear. You will suffer. Now, as I said earlier, I have a lot of joy and a lot of happiness, even in suffering. Even in suffering. There's still a lot of beauty in this world that God created. There's still a lot of joy. There's still a lot of happiness. I love you. You love each other. You love your family and your friends. You have a lot of good things, but there will be suffering. That's part of having to be here in this broken and fallen world, but we're not citizens of this world. We're here to make other people not citizens of this world. That's the Great Commission. That's what it's all about. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, those of you who have lost people and suffered, they're in Christ. They're with him, as will you be. Don't 
sorrow as those who have no hope. There are those who sorrow because they have no hope. If you're an atheist, you have no hope. Your best hope is eaten by worms, right? Like I, I disappear and it goes away. The problem with that is, is that you know in your heart that you're eternal. You know that you were, you could, if you just think about it, just focus on it, meditate on the word of God, you realize you were not made to die and think no more. You, were, you are made to be eternal. Uh, you can feel it, that there's something wrong with death. We don't, we don't, when an animal dies, we're like, yeah, the animal died. We might be sad, but I've never had a cat, well, especially a cat, that I've thought should live forever, right? I'm kidding. I love cats. Love cats. <laughs> I'm going to get emails from the cat people. Listen, they're great. They're wonderful. They're wonderful little sinners. Anyway, but you know that death doesn't seem right. Cats and dogs, they don't fear it. It's, it's, it. At this point, it's just a part of their thing. But you were not made to die. And that's your hope. Because whether you're in Christ or not, you are going to live forever, forever. And you have one of two places you're going to be, with him or not with him. And the not with him is bad news. Real bad news. And it's real. And you only have one life. It is given for a man once to die and then the judgment we avoid the judgment if we're in Christ, not because we couldn't be judged, but because he's paid the price already. We get to look to him and we get his righteousness. If you are not in Christ, you don't get to avoid the judgment. A very uncomfortable truth if you're not in Jesus. And so confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. No longer under judgment. All right, next question. We got time. Question, not getting worked up about the trans thing is very difficult if you have children. How can we be expected not to get worked up? I would flip tables to protect my child. So last week there was a question about the transgender stuff and we talked about it and I talked about how to love people and still, and still hold the truth, right? How to have the truth and love. And I talked about not becoming overly worked up and I think that the idea here is, wait, wait, wait. We need to be worked up because our society is falling apart with, with this kind of thing. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's be clear about a couple things. Jesus flipped tables in the temple, in God's house, okay? He didn't go to the public school and do it. He was protecting the house of God and what was going on there. And absolutely, if you see people in this church, if we at the elders start promoting evil and lies and deception and things that are in the scripture, flip some tables over. Most of them are plastic. It's going to be really anticlimactic. They're going to be like, dunk, dunk. But do it. Flip them over, okay? But there is a difference between that and how we deal with the world, how we deal with the world. Do not get worked up in fear is my main point. It is your God-given responsibility. If you're a parent, I want you to hear this, okay? It is your God-given responsibility. Yes, it's your right, but rights are about responsibilities. It is your God-given responsibility to raise and teach your own children. Okay? And I'm not saying you have to homeschool your children. Some people choose to go that, that route, and that's great. I'm not saying when teach, that means that no one else can have any... any... Somebody's got to teach my kids math. Well, my wife can do that, but I, you know, I don't know. Especially the new math, what's going on with that, right? I don't know. Anyway, what your children are exposed to at school must be answered by you when they come home. They must be taught correctly at home. Let me, let me just help you with something. You are not going to be able to protect your children from ever hearing falsehoods and lies, okay? Especially if you give them one of, one of these things, okay? 
You give them one of these things, they're going to hear a lot. But they're going to hear it either way. I mean, think about how young you were when your first naughty friend told you about whatever, right? They're going to hear it. The question isn't whether they're going to hear it. The question is, what are you going to say? This, is, this comes back to knowing the Word of God well. How are you going to teach your child so that they can reject that, so they see the truth of it, not just because I told you so, but because you can give a reason for the hope within? You have an obligation for apologetics, which is a defense of the faith, with your own children. So when they go to school and the school says, you should experiment, you don't know what, you, what your gender is, you should experiment and think that, or you don't know what your sexuality is, mess around with everybody, right? And that's happening, no question about it. That's happening. So whose responsibility is it to teach your kids that that's a lie from the pit of hell? Your responsibility. Your responsibility. I'm not saying don't send your kids to public school. I went to public school, and I'm fine. And I went to public school, and I'm fine. And I, no. <laughs> I went to public school. It was bad, even then. There was, there was a mess in terms of what they taught and what people believed. But it was an important thing for me because of my own personal makeup. Our kids, they did it all. They did public school, they did private school, they did homeschooling. We did all, all of those things. All of them had their different values and their different negatives, okay? If you have children, make that decision. My, my thing is, if you can afford it, homeschooling or a Christian private school is going to equip your child uh, in a way that's good. But some of you are like, no, my kid, my kid's going to do well in the public school. I want, we can't take all the Christians out of public school right? Jesus wasn't like, well, don't go where the sinners are. That wasn't his thing, right? We have to be a light in the darkness. So some of your kids have to go to public school. Why? Because we're called. We're called to be witnesses. Don't go over to the public school and start flipping over tables at the PTA meeting. It's not the house of the Lord. Public school is not the house of the Lord, okay? As far as voting, speaking to your Congress people, as far as, as the schools and so on, have the influence that you can have. Have the influence that you can have, but recognize they're deceived. Lost people are lost. They're deceived. They're going to continue to deceive others because they're deceived. Satan's the father of lies. And if you're in the world and you're not in Christ, you're, you're in his dominion. And so lies are going to be there. You're, the defense against lies is the truth. It's less about controlling everybody and more about telling the truth. So yes, is it, is it a sad thing and a disaster that the public schools have become what they have? It is. It is. And frankly, it was going to be hard for it to ever become anything else because the fact is, is that that's a secular institution. And secular institutions do have a religion. They do. It's, it's some form of, I don't know, humanism. Uh, it's, it's nonsense. But they're going to teach it to your kids. So whose job is it to teach them? It's your job. It's your responsibility. Take it seriously. I don't know you guys do. I know you guys do. Okay, you got to remember that people, Romans 1, we read it recently when we we're going through, I don't know how recently, last year sometime probably uh, by now, but Romans 1, I'll just turn there real quick, maybe not that quick, here we go, Romans 1 starting at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what's happening. If you've never seen it before, turn on the news. Go to your child's school if you have children in school and they go to public school. Go anywhere. Turn on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, whatever it is, and you will see a whole host of people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now, here's the thing. The wrath of God is for that. 
okay? He's the one. He's the one who's going to bring the wrath, his wrath on that because they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He does not say the wrath of Steve is being revealed from Vancouver on all those. He doesn't say that. No offense to Steve's that are in the room. The wrath of God, okay? So I'm angry about it. You bet I am. I, I have a righteous anger about what's happening and about how people are harming children, especially with the transgender thing. But, but there's a lot of things. It's not just that. It's a whole lot of ugly going on. But the wrath of God will deal with that. My job is what? The Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples. What's going to change it? Changing people, transforming people. That's what's going to change it. it. You yelling at people and calling them names and saying how stupid they are, that's not helping anything. That's a, it is stupid, okay? The, the philosophy of the world is stupid. But try to point that out in a way that's effective to what? Draw them to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. Unfortunately, it's not you. But you speak the truth, and the Holy Spirit can use that to change hearts. All right. I'm going to let that one go. We, it's 1116. Ooh. So the next question was this. What does the Bible mean when it says a wife must submit to her husband? Does God still give women choice to speak up or stay silent? Okay. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing that. No. I... All right, let's do it. Woo! Getting me in trouble, everybody. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look, I'm reading the Bible. Don't get mad at me, all right? All right. I feel like I am walking on scary ground here. All right, chapter 3, we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses. Wives, likewise. Be submissive to your own husbands. I can't even say it. I'm scared of you so much. <laughs> and even if, do I have security after this, John? Who would take care of that? Even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let it's fear of God, not fear of, of your husband. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. That's about the throwing the ball thing. That you get you, right? Okay, I just want to you know. I'm just saying you're not as strong. Okay, uh, to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Why does it say husbands have to do that? That your prayers may not be hindered. Now, if you don't take that seriously, husbands, that if you do not honor your wife in this way, God will not listen to your prayers. You need him to listen to your prayers, especially if you have a wife. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Finally, all of you, husbands and wives, be of one mind, 
having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling, for, for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Husbands and wives, think about that, okay? And his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of, God, of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, that's, that's one. Let's read one more. Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. This is on page 1097. See, we've done the whole thing already. All right. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you're wondering what marriage is and how to define it, there it is, okay? It's all over the scripture. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You want to find a bad marriage? Find a husband that doesn't love his wife. You want to find a bad marriage? Find a wife who doesn't respect her husband. It's real simple. You ever done marriage counseling? Real easy. One of those is usually missing, if not both. So here's the deal. Are wives to be submissive to their husbands? Yes. Sorry. I know that we're in the 21st century now and that that's all backwards and no, that was just for the time. Nope. Absolutely 100% this is the pattern. But who are all the instructions for here? Husbands, you're to love your wife. Listen, as Christ loved the church, what did he do for the church? Died for it. So if, listen, does anyone have a real problem submitting to the love of Christ? Not if you understand it. If you understand who Jesus is, you don't have a problem submitting to him. So a wife isn't going to have a problem submitting to you, husband, if you're loving her like Christ. Unfortunately, some of us are like, she never submits to me. I don't understand why. I treat her like garbage all the time. Shouldn't she submit to me? <laughs> well, you've got to do your part. You've got to do your part. Or you don't want your prayers hindered, right? You want to love your wife as you're called to do. So it is absolutely true that if you are not loving your wife as Christ loves the church, honoring her, building her up, being her biggest fan, encouraging her, giving her everything she needs to be the person that God made her to be and preparing her to meet Jesus one day, if you're not doing that, you are disobeying the word of God, husbands. Take it seriously. And he's not going to listen to your prayers. For the wives... If you're not living like this, respecting your husband, being submissive to him, it says in everything, you are disobeying the word of God. 
Now, a little side note. Some men are abusive. Don't live with them. It's as simple as I can put it. If you're being abused, tell me. Tell me, tell one of the elders. Do not stay in a scenario where you or your children are unsafe because of a man who is an abuser. Not okay. Submission is about, uh, it's like the church in Christ. It's, a, it's loving. It's about roles. It has nothing to do with, oh, well, that means women are less valuable or less important. No, we have roles. We have roles. This is, listen, you know what the biggest uh, argument that in, from the world against this is? It's transgenderism. That is the argument against this. No, there is no such thing as a woman's role within the church, within the home, within her marriage, within the workplace. There's no such thing as that, and there's no such thing as a man's role with it. Anybody can be anything they want to be by simply wishing it. That is, that, the reason that is so bad is because it is an absolute violation of the created order of God. Men and women are made to be together in harmony, loving one another, a husband sacrificially giving himself up for his wife and a wife respecting her husband. But let me tell you something, ladies and men. Husbands, you are the one. You have been given this. You have been given this to protect your wife, to take care of her, to provide for her, and you will be called to account for it. You are the one who will have to answer to God for what's happening in your home and your family. That's why the wives who are submitting, he's the one who's going to be responsible for it. He's the one who's responsible for it. So help him, encourage him. I can tell you this, my wife is the person most in the world by far and away who has helped me grow and be transformed by Jesus Christ. I hope the same is true for her. Yeah, that's good. Clap for my wife. Yay. Love her. She's great. Um, I hope that's true in your home. I have so many more questions. It's 1125. I want to take communion and honor the Lord's sacrifice. So we're going to do that now.